Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talked about Labour 2's report into sexual harassment allegations. Corbyn's big Brexit speech. And why Brexiteers always talk about trade deals. So Jeremy Corbyn had a big speech this week uh, about the customs union, about foreign policy, more general than just Brexit. The best insight that I've heard into Jeremy Corbyn's speech so far was from a friend of mine who is not a sort of avid politics follower, generally Labour, but not a big fan of Corbyn. And he said, oh, you know, I really did like that thing that Jeremy Corbyn said about the customs union the other day. I feel like it's something that Labour's always been saying, but now it's more organised. <laughs> and I definitely think that that's true, because really, the main shift was that he basically said, we want to have this customs union permanently. We're in favour of that. Whereas before it was like, we want access to the single market and the benefits of the customs union. It was a bit more vague. So now we know what he wants and it's a dividing line with the Conservatives when it comes down to voting. But yes, I do agree with what my friend said was that now it's just a little bit more organised. So now if you are a Remainer and you are looking to Labour for leadership, you can think to yourself, oh, well, they're actually quite pro-European. And if you're a lever, you look to Labour and you still know that their policy is just to leave the European Union just like the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean, this thing, it kind of, what they've done very effectively this week, well, I think obviously it may turn out to be completely wrong when, yeah, the Lib Dems win 500 council seats in May. (laughs) But I think what they've done is to put enough sort of Remain-ism into the tank to allow those people who kind of want to believe Labour or Corbyn is with them on Brexit. Yeah. And it's just allowed them to do that while still basically going, yeah, I mean, it was, I think it's the most explicitly Eurosceptic speech I've heard from him since he became leader. He obviously won a mandate as a Eurosceptic candidate in 2015, something which both sides of the party then seemed to conveniently forget in 2016, which I've never really understood. I do think, however... I'd say it's a slightly bigger shift than you'd suggest because being in the customs union does, uh, sorry, a customs union does place some limitations on what Labour's policy would do. Mm-hmm. Crucially, 
it is a big call by Corbyn that goes against many of the people he usually sort of listens to on a lot of issues. So okay. from you know Seamus Milne, McDonnell, Barry Gardner, who although he's not you know a member of the inner circle, is someone who has you know won himself a lot of internal credibility. He has been key behind the scenes in arguing that you know outside a customs union you can use trade deals to you know encourage global justice, which I mean, I think is bollocks if you're a small to medium sized economy like the UK. Mm. That would be true if we, you know, then actually that's that's much more true of something you could do if you had left-wing governments in power across the EU, right? Or if you had a left-wing president and a left-wing yeah. Senate majority. You you can't do that in with a country the size of Britain because most people go like, mm, okay, we've decided that we don't want to do these things, so we just won't sign this deal with you. So I think it's a big shift in terms of where Jeremy Corbyn himself is. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying he's suddenly started to love the EU, but as I say in my column this week, I think the observation which got down to it was, you know, kind of one of his allies said, ultimately what's happened is Jeremy has decided he wants to be prime minister mm-hmm. and he is aware that the road to Downing Street lies, in their words, lies to the correct adjustments to the party's Brexit position. Okay. Now, I don't think Corbyn will ever be the candidate of no Brexit at all. I think his kind of sense of loyalty to ideas uh, would mean he just would never forgive himself for that. But I do think that this is a more significant shift in terms of where Labour is going to position itself on Brexit. Going okay, forward. okay, yeah. No, I think maybe perhaps what my friend and, and me as well was driving at was more the perception of Corbyn, because like you say, lots of his supporters and people in this party conveniently forgot the fact that he was never in favour of Britain's sort of status quo membership of the European Union. So the perception has always been that he is quite cuddly and nice to migrants, therefore he must quite like the European Union, if you're not someone who watches politics closely. So I suppose now he's kind of the kind of policy, he's kind of embedded that. Yeah, the policy yeah, matches with something the, policy. Because in based. terms of the sort of the cultural schism of Remain Leave, Corbyn is obviously on the cultural yeah, side of uh, yeah. uh, of the Remain Leave, open closed, whatever you want to call it. And so I think that's part of why people struggle to reconcile it. Because yes, yeah. Um, which I mean, interestingly, he kind of briefly nodded to the fact he thinks this is wrong in his speech, where he kind of went, "Look, the word Eurosceptic gets abused all the time to mean you know anti-European, anti-migrant." Actually, being a Eurosceptic doesn't have to mean those things, which I thought was an interesting yeah. sort of... Yeah, no, definitely. And I interviewed one of the more Corbynite members of the Shadow Cabinet recently, Richard Bergen, the Shadow Justice Secretary, who's always been quite loyal to Jeremy Corbyn. He was saying, look, you know, what's important to Labour, this was before Jeremy Corbyn's speech, what's important to Labour in terms of Brexit is to do what's, to support what's in the national interest, but to also show that Labour uh, respects democracy. And that's quite, I think that's quite an interesting thing because it's almost saying, you know, we don't necessarily, we just have to make sure that we look like we're listening to people, <laughs> which is almost quite cynical, but that's what they, they've very successfully been doing. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So Anoush, this week you have been writing about 
Labour 2, the organisation which came out out of Me Too, which has been charting, it's an organisation run by Labour women, charting allegations of sexual harassment in the Labour Party. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that sprung up in October last year, which listeners will remember was a time immediately after Me Too sort of became a hashtag around the world following the Harvey Weinstein scandal. And it hit Westminster known as Pestminster, um, when we discovered the extent to which people were being sexually harassed, abused, and um, just inappropriate behaviour around the Houses of Parliament. And some Labour women from all parts of the party, local and national, decided to set up their own anonymous movement called Labour 2. And they did it in quite a clever way in which they collected anonymous stories using a website from Labour women from all parts of the party councillors, politicians, staffers, just members and local activists, asking them basically, have you been sexually harassed by someone involved in the Labour Party? And they got so many responses and they filed 43 of those responses, which is nowhere near as many as they received to the Labour Party uh, yesterday. They've sent a report to Jeremy Corbyn, to the NEC, which is the ruling committee, and to a lawyer who's in charge of sort of reviewing their grievance process, and also to the General Secretary, Ian McNichol, who is outgoing. But they're hoping that he'll have a chance to have a look at it and that his successor can, can look into the recommendations that they've made for how the party can change its complaints procedure. So what they're arguing, and it's supported by female Labour MPs, the women's PLP, is that they want an independent process from start to end. So Jeremy Corbyn's already introduced sort of Rape Crisis, which is an independent organisation to deal with the initial complaint and to be completely independent from the party when they advise the person who's making the complaint. But then if it is escalated, it goes to the sexual harassment panel, which is made up of members of the NEC, which are political appointments. And that's a problem for people who want to make complaints because they think this is a bit like the party market its own homework. So they want to have a completely independent panel at that stage as well, and to the very end of the process when the MP gets, or the, whoever it is in question gets punished. That's how they want it to work. The Labour Party before last October has been pretty slow on this, but actually they've been quite pleased with the way that Jeremy Corbyn's responded to some of the stories and allegations that have come out since then by already changing the structure, but they basically don't think it's gone far enough yet. The advantage that Corbyn has, and the reason why a lot of people, I think, have a lot of, yeah, including lots of women who bluntly do not share his politics, yeah, yeah, uh, do not think that he cares all that much about it as an issue. But the reason why they're quite optimistic about it is although they don't think he has any particular religion on it, mm. they think his heart is kind of in the right place on the issue. And crucially, because Jeremy Corbyn has only really been running the Labour Party, yeah, he's been its nominal leader, but he's only been running it since June of 2017. Exactly, yeah. Um, he has very little to fear from pulling away the curtain to reveal the horror that is the number of things that we all know have been covered up in the past. Yeah. Because um, I think it's probably helpful, and I know we've probably said this before on the podcast, uh, but but I know, disappointingly, not all of you listen to it every week. Um, <laughs> it feels to me that every journalist has a story from someone who said, oh, this happened to me, and you either haven't been able to stand it up, or the person hasn't wanted to go on the record, or you know they've been persuaded by people in, in the Conservatives, in the Labour Party, in the Lib Dems, not to come forward. So it is one of those things that if the parties keep pulling on this thread, eventually the whole garment is going to come... Exactly. unraveled yeah. but corbyn has nothing to fear i think from from that 
No, because he's, he's never been involved in the party's structures or its leadership during the time that this kind of stuff has been covered up or when people have been encouraged not to say anything or just simply they haven't reformed their complaints procedure at all. So, yeah, you're right. He's, he's sort of blameless when it comes to that. It will just be interesting to see how quickly he responds to the Labour 2 report, which requests these recommendations. And as we know about Corbyn, and I know mainly it's for political reasons, but he's not shy of tearing up the party's structures, is he? He's not shy of doing that. He's almost, although people will say he's entrenched in his his own brand of politics, he's, he, he's a bit of an iconoclast. He doesn't really mind about not sticking to the status quo. So hopefully that instinct in him will also help him change. Yeah. Although, you know, lots of people were quite troubled by the fact that when Kelvin Hopkins was, who I yeah. think still does not have the Labour whip, was accused of sexually harassing a young woman. The website Squawkbox, which for those of you who don't know, is a, a new left-wing blog, was incredibly pro-Hopkins in its coverage. The reason why this bothers people is, um, and I think there's a, a bit of a problem in the way journalists cover the new left-wing blogs, of kind of lumping them in together as if they were one amorphous blog, right? Uh, yeah. They're actually all quite different, and the differences are quite important. The Canary is basically doing what The Independent is doing, which is appealing to left-wing people online for, for clicks and as part yeah. of its revenue model. Yeah, and using... Um, news clips and transcripts to sort of say yeah this and, happened today yeah and they yeah. are very much in that kind of independent Edo forks breitbart style space yeah evolve politics i i would say is a more serious sort of proposition founded by a guy called matt turner who's still a student which always makes me feel old <laughs> and tired but it is kind of a it's a partisan news site but i would say it was more Serious is the wrong word because obviously, like the Canary and Guido are serious. What was the word I? I think it's a bit more considered in its coverage, yeah. and I don't think that the Canary or even Guido would mind not being called considered in the yeah. sense that it often it will lead with the same story or headline as the Canary, but then it will give its own sort of insight into sort of what's happening. Or not not insight, but analysis, partisan yeah. analysis. But I, I mean, there's no such thing as non-partisan analysis. Yeah, perhaps it's then it's more broadsheet. Yeah, maybe um, that. That's yeah. Um, and then Squawkbox, which I would put in a third category for the important reason that although the leader's office, well, parts of the leader's office have a hands-off relationship with all of the kind of new media uh, yeah. organizations, if you want to get an insight into a particular faction within the leader's office, which tends to be closer to the trade union's thinks, they do a lot of their briefing and house journalism into Squawkbox. Yes, um, I actually interviewed the the guy who runs Squawkbox a while back, and he was, you know, very open about his union ties. And he has actually, I mean, Squawkbox, although it's often lumped into these new left wing media blogs that came around with Jeremy Corbyn's rise, it's actually been around since 2015. And its first bits of journalism were exposing the Mid Staffordshire Hospital scandal um, around that time. And so, it, you know, the guy who runs it is someone who does get inside stories and insight from people who are involved in politics. Yeah. And yeah. so now, while I don't think it is wholly accurate for people to see an article in Squawkbox about what really happened in a meeting of Labour's top team as the gospel truth, mm. truth, it is definitely what someone believes to be the gospel truth, right? So I know you might think, but surely these two things can't say this be the same thing. But if you, um, it's sometimes I think helpful to think of disputes in political parties a bit like break, uh, relationship breakups, right? When someone says we broke up because she was demanding, and the other one goes we broke up because 
he never called and like flirted with my sister. Right. <laughs> the person saying she was being demanding is not lying. However, it is an incomplete version, I would argue, of of the truth. Yeah. Um, but because of those uh, of those close links, people well, people in the poli- people in the Labour Party often feel if Squawk Box reports something from that because they know it has that endorsement of the leader's office yeah. that it shows that the leader's office is not going to take the sexual harassment stuff very seriously because Squawk Box went to bat for Kelvin Hopkins quite yeah. so hard. Okay, so the assumption is that there are certain people close to the leadership who would share that view because that's something that Squawk Box was, was going hard on. Yeah. yeah, I know I've spoken to people involved in Labour 2 who, you know, they they share Jeremy Corbyn's politics, but they you know they they have found that particular instance quite uncomfortable. So it does remain to be seen how yeah how dramatically the party reacts to this report. And now it's time for a section we like to call "You Ask Us." Indeed, actually, loads and loads of good questions this week. Some of which we discuss on our Facebook lives, where where you can watch us talk about what we're going to put in the podcast, and also you can put questions for next week. But I thought the good one is a good kind of jumping off point: is why is it that trade deals have become the be all and end all of Brexit, as far as the government and most of kind of the leave elite, as it was, aims for Brexit go? I think one of the main reasons for this is because. The idea of striking new trade deals is the most exciting thing they can think of that separates them from the sort of remain elite or their opponents. Because it sounds, you know, it does sound good for Britain to be able to strike its own trade deal with the US or China or exciting other countries that have lots of money and are in the news. And people think that that sounds sexy. And the counter argument from the Remainers is always, well, we're already in a trading block that makes those decisions for us, which just isn't very exciting. Sounds a bit status quo, sounds a bit dry, doesn't sound very ambitious. So I can see why they think that that trade deals are their sort of one of a a good rhetorical device. Also, another thing that they were often arguing before the referendum was about sovereignty. And obviously, that's gone a bit out of the window now that we know that Parliament has quite a bit of weight when it comes down to Brexit votes. I think you're exactly right. Then part of what is going on is there is this really strong desire from the Brexit elite to be able to point to a tangible thing that they can point to and go, CCC, we got this. uh, And we couldn't have got this without Brexit. However, there are a couple of problems, which you know I know whenever we discuss Brexit, people groan, but it's important, <laughs> which kind of comes down to the kind of big sort of looming crisis as we're, we're recording this in the Brexit talks, which of course is the future of the Irish border and our international obligations under the Good Friday Agreement, all of which assume an open border with, between Ireland and Northern Ireland which you cannot have without having a common regulatory area, at least with Northern Ireland and Ireland. And because of where the internal politics, both of the Tory party, but also crucially their coalition, well, their confidence and supply partners in the DUP, you can't have a border in the Irish Sea, which means you have to have a fairly close Brexit, right? You, You have to stay within that customs and regulatory orbit. But the weird thing is, is that it feels like with the exception of Boris Johnson, who I can't believe I'm about to say something semi-positive sounding about, most Brexiteers don't seem to want to even acknowledge that this decision exists and need to be made, right? they You don't get the benefits of, to the extent those benefits really exist, 
in a trade deal, you're negotiating with your right to set your own regulatory agreements and to open up your own markets, right? So if you are inside a customs union, your ability to do that is curtailed, right? However, if you leave a customs union, you have border infrastructure between Northern Ireland and Ireland or in the Irish Sea, and you have to choose between one of those two options, not outside the customs and regulatory agreements or border infrastructure. Yes, and and you're right that Boris Johnson is one of the only of the key levers who's actually acknowledged this because he's sort of tentatively spoken about trying to harden up the border because he knows that otherwise the alternative is as you say. And we've had the draft agreement which is about to be put into into law. We've seen it today. And that basically says that, you know, we've always known it, but it, it says it and it's riling people up all over again. You, you have to have sort of single market rules in Northern Ireland not to have a hard border there. So so what does that mean for the rest of the UK? And no one wants to acknowledge it. And that's partly because no one really spoke about it before the referendum and probably didn't even think about it either. Yeah. And I know we've said that on the podcast before, but what it ties into is sort of how you and I wanted to look at how there's a tendency for conservatives of all parts of the party not to face the reality that Brexit is a new reality rather than something to get over with or fudge, to use inverted commas. One of the massive sort of tactical, intellectual, ideological benefits that Jeremy Corbyn and indeed sort of the Lexit people more generally have is for them Brexit is something that they, they want to happen in order to have a concrete series of policy asks. I don't think Lexit is any more desirable or the achievements are any more um, likely to arise than the sort of right-wing Brexit idea. However, they are actually policy levers. The question of whether or not they work is an open one, right? But those are things that you, you know, like the, the trade-off that Corbyn presented in his speech on Monday, where he went, look, we'll be inside the customs and uh, regulatory arrangement. However, I want to be as far away as possible from these judgments I don't like about working standards, Yada yada yada. Yeah. Again, that 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 is a real world, tangible series of trade offs. Yeah. Whereas going, we want to sign our own trade deals, but we don't want anything to change with reference to the Irish border is just is just crazy. It's not a real world proposition. But yeah, again, it does come back to and yes, this has been a regular theme, but it is I think really important in order to understand how not just the bit of the Tory party which is into Brexit, but the whole of the Tory party approaches it, which is effectively something they have to go through, then basically politics will return to normal, in inverted quote marks, and they will then be able to do the stuff which will matter in terms of the next election. Now, of course, this just is not true. To me, the only interesting question is, we know that there were people whose vote in the last US presidential election was driven by NAFTA, a trade deal which is older than either you or I. Well, in terms of when it was agreed in principle, it, we're older than its ratification. But very few of those voters went, I am angry because of NAFTA. They went, I'm annoyed because of X. And then you like draw the line draw the of line, causation yeah. and it's like, oh, it's NAFTA. So it may be that there is a large chunk of people who are no longer saying, I am angry because of Brexit, although that feels unlikely. Mm. However, there are lots of reasons why a lot of chain restaurants who have expanded too quickly are now either at risk of administration or are having to retreat. You may have noticed on your high street and things like Coat, ZZ's, Strada, what's the other one? Prezzo. Prezzo, yeah. Um, are all starting to close, having opened again very quickly. Now, this is partly because a lot of them have been funded by debt-backed expansion. But the other is that the fall in the value of the pound has hit their margins quite badly. And the inflation has also hit their mm. margins quite quite badly we also know at the last election that wage inflation you know sort of the squeeze on wages 
almost certainly was a vote-moving mm. asset for Labour. Now, very few people go and my wages have been squeezed because of Brexit. It's like my wages have been squeezed and I blame the government. So maybe the Conservatives will be right and that people will stop thinking that they are voting because of Brexit. However, you know, that's not the same thing, right? Yeah, and also it doesn't stop the unsatisfaction that was there that was a very big part of the Brexit vote, does it? I mean, not even just finding that stuff in the supermarket is more expensive, but also maybe your operation was cancelled last month. And all of that doesn't necessarily draw a direct line for the voter to... Brexit, but it does mean that you're unsatisfied. And who gets hurt when you're unsatisfied? The ruling party. So Labour definitely has an advantage there. And also one thing I've noticed from interviewing Labour politicians recently is that they do have a clear advantage in terms of talking about domestic policy as well. Because like you say, they've squared their domestic policy, not okay, not completely, but but with the idea of Brexit, because the leadership is broadly in favour of Brexit. And so they, they can talk about prison reform or they can talk about reversing welfare cuts, whereas conservative politicians really struggle to talk about policy because there's nothing else coming out of government. I don't know whether you found that too. One of the things I feel a lot of the media and a lot of, sort of people analysing what they were do- doing have forgotten is that the task of government and opposition are fundamentally different. There are things you can do in opposition which... I think, make your life a lot harder when you get into government, CF the Lib Dems, CF the French Socialists. However, it doesn't really change the fact that in opposition, you can basically get away with finding your area of strength, the thing people trust you on, and basically going, this contentious thing, we would do the thing they're doing, but insert area of strength. If the Tories were in opposition, what they ought to be doing with Brexit is going, we will do Brexit, but we will make sure that we have a tougher line on Europol or the European arrest. I don't know I try and say the European arrest warrant. 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 (laughs) Because that is an area on which they have a huge brand, brand lead. Yeah, they are the strong party. Labour going, we'll do Brexit, but nicer helps them because they are the nice party. And as you say, they have squared their agenda. Yeah, and 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 you could probably say that one of the reasons why trade deals are the main topic of conversation, to go back to the original question, is because of this vacuum, because of this vacuum of anything else that they can talk about. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed by Creative Commons. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast and would like to see how the sausage gets made, you can watch it our Facebook Lives. In fact, you don't even have to watch them live. Then you can leave a question underneath or a topic you'd like to suggest, or you could nominate a charity that my Boris Johnson swear jar could ultimately go to. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.